Diplomatica, a journal of diplomacy and society. In the following, you'll hear Håkon Ikonomo from the University of Copenhagen in conversation with three authors of important new books on coloniality and decolonization in the 20th century international sphere. The three historians are Marco Tudor from the University of Exeter with her book Blue Helmet Bureaucrats, Ismay Milford from Universität Leipzig with her book African Activists in a Decolonizing World, and finally Florian Wagner from Universität Erfurt with his book Colonial Internationalism and the Governmentality of Empire. Initially the three authors present a brief outline of their books with Margot Tudor cutting the first surf. The conversation was recorded live at the Saxo Institute at the University of Copenhagen. Enjoy. Just to give a brief overview of the book's interventions and contributions, um, specifically to scholarship on international rule during decolonization, um, I'm going to focus a little bit on what the main question was when I started the project, which was questioning how and why peacekeepers perceived and interacted with local civilians in particular ways. Um, and so my focus is very much on the granular field-based mechanisms through which international actors negotiated and renegotiated geopolitical crises um, and also contested statehood from the late 1940s through into the detente uh, decade in the 1970s. And so that's the re reason for that specific periodization. So as relationships of domination and suppression shifted um, during this period of the Cold War, but also this uh, generation of decolonization, the UN peacekeeping project, which was new in uh, the post-war uh, era, won significant diplomatic and political currency for its frontline role in a series of geopolitically significant conflicts. And this currency empowered these field-based UN staff, specifically mid-level staff, to experiment with innovating global norms, um, especially as the elasticity of um, nation-state sovereignty was already being tested um, by socialist, pan-African, Afro-Asian, black internationalist, federalist, or separatist thinkers, and obviously Ismay's work touches on this in more detail. Um, and so these plans were not simply utopian dreams. Um, sovereignty was not monopolized by those um, within the liberal internationalist paradigm. National independence was only one of the many imagined outcomes for decolonization during this period. And so alternative forms of self-determination and political enfranchisement were debated by activists across the global south, as well as among radical groups in imperial metropoles. And these competed for traction whilst battling against the racial and ethnic trappings of nationhood, with many of these thinkers building rights-focused anti-colonial visions for future generations. However, the same moment of transformation that ignited these kinds of anti-colonial world-making plans also provoked liberal liberal internationalist pushback to protect the nation-state paradigm, but also an anti-communist urgency to suppress the growth of what was seen as kind of the threat of communism and potentially the Third World War as European empires collapsed and suddenly the global south appeared vulnerable to attack. 
And so UN peacekeeping missions and practices contributed to the silencing of these alternative plans for world making, imposing inflexible frameworks of liberal internationalism, member state nationalism and anti-communism onto these decolonizing spaces. And so the book achieves or attempts to achieve a better understanding of the roots, politics and constraints on these international civil servants as they try to seek a more politically viable solution for the perpetuation of this nation state paradigm. And I'm try as part of the book, I try and understand how peacekeeping missions became the most popular solution for the de-escalation of these volatile conflicts in the post-war era from the project not existing at all to becoming the most popular solution. And so whilst these anxieties about an impending third world war, especially as the Cold War um, shifted into the 1950s, troubled political elites in um, the Anglo-American sphere, but also global South communities alike, shared dreams of a liberal global community protected by UN peacekeepers served to satisfy common calls for greater international recourse and expertise in contexts of conflict. For diplomats, it felt like lessons had been learned from the failures of collective security in the past, such as with the League of Nations. And so for many in the post-war era, UN peacekeeping represented the most modern development-driven approach to future-proof international peace and security. This was the solution we'd all been looking for. And so most crucially for the Second World War victors, the mission shielded the great power nations from experiencing the impact of post-colonial violence and instability that they had weathered throughout the Second World War. But indeed, they had caused themselves, or through their imperialist allies, this instability and extractive relationship being the foundation of many of the, decolon many of the decolonizing conflicts that I examine in my book. And so by using a humanitarian guise, the organization set host populations and international community expectations of the rights-based motivations and interests protected by peacekeeping staff. It was seen as a solution that was popular because it was seen as humanitarian, and that's the way it was marketed. Unelected mid-level UN officials, uh, typically mission-based or field-based leadership who were active and part of the peacekeeping operation, employed their direct and physical access to local politicians, populations and activists to shape governance structures such as post-colonial territorial borders um, that would conform to the organization's framework in exchange for technical support and most importantly for many of these new nations, international legitimacy. And so mission practices on the ground entrenched a universalist ideology of liberal internationalism and paternalism, prioritizing regional and international stability over small or more marginalized or indigenous population self-determination. And shaping and reflecting the dominant geopolitical order, UN peacekeeping staff imposed a particular type of elite technocratic standard of acceptable or legitimate statehood and post-colonial political life upon these decolonizing populations serving to gatekeep international representation, but also importantly, those protections. And so rethinking the mechanisms through which sovereignty was negotiated and renegotiated on the ground allows us to better understand the loci of power that influenced the processes of decolonization and the formation of the post-colonial international order that we often limit to the level of diplomatic engagement on those high level conversations. 
And so these formative peacekeeping missions from 1945 to 1971, or this period, helps to provide me with these vital case studies for understanding how particular operations fundamentally and continually remade international cultures of both peacekeeping, but also humanitarianism, this longer generational um, narrative of humanitarianism during decolonization, as well as reworking doctrines of imperial power and sovereignty during the Cold War at this kind of very fluid moment. And so I focus specifically on the first armed peacekeeping missions to examine how this specific collaboration of militarism and humanitarianism evolved and developed in the field. The Suez Crisis led to the construction of the first armed peacekeeping mission, the United Nations Emergency Force, or UNEF, which was established in Egypt and the Gaza Strip in November 1956. Three years into UNEF's operations, the Congo Crisis, which was provoked by an illegal Belgian military intervention, with ONUC, which was formally launched in nine, July 1960. And then within 18 months, the new UN Secretary General, Uthant, uh, negotiated the first UN Territorial Administration, the United Nations Temporary Executive Authority, or UNTI, sometimes fondly referred to as ANTI, which again, we go back to that paternalism, um, which deployed a peacekeeping mission to West Papua, which is um, continues to be annexed by Indonesia today. And that was in October 1962. And then lastly, just as the ONAC mission was winding down, um, the United Nations Security Council authorized the United Nations force in Cyprus, on the uh, uh, which occupied the entire island in March 1964. And so the physical nature of mission deployment empowered mid-level staff, authorizing them to take decisions on the ground that would otherwise be out of their purview or would be politically disastrous for the organization, though this kind of black boxing of mid-level staff enabled this behavior. And so my book is the first history of tracing these multiple past peacekeeping missions as it tracks patterns and structures across these vastly different diverse geographies and conflict contexts. As I discover throughout these formative missions, mid-level bureaucrats were faced with a diverse mix of ex-colonial powers, British, Belgian, Dutch, Indonesian, and these intricacies of the political and economic legacies of each colonial administration and their continuing aspirations for continued influence in this host country's society. Additionally, these territorial disputes erupted at different points in the population's processes of decolonization, which is perhaps something we can discuss later how conflicts don't always happen at exactly the same moment of decolonization and how diverse decolonization is um, as an overarching process. Um, just as an example, Egypt had been nominally independent from Britain for three decades by the time we get to the Suez Crisis. Um, Congo Crisis developed a fortnight after Congolese Independence Day, so incredibly rapidly. West Papua was still colonized by the Dutch by the time the UN mission arrived. And Cyprus was again three years post-independence and was supposedly precariously peaceful until December 1963. And so in these case studies, the heterogeneity of the sovereignty disputes faced by UN peacekeeping staff during decolonization presented a variety of logistical and diplomatically uh, diplomatic challenges because you don't really have an exact blueprint for each of these diverse settings. And so as the organization's global position grew, obviously at this point still a very young organization, 
the oversight of UN missions increased whilst member states began to question the costs, financial and political, of the peacekeeping project as a whole. And that's really how my book kind of concludes in 1971, with the organisation really considering whether peacekeeping was going to be a viable project for the next decade and onwards. And I'll just conclude there. Thank you. Thank you very much, Margaret. Uh, I'll hand the word straight over to you, uh, Ismay. Yeah, great. Thank you very much. Um, and that's actually a really nice, uh, kind of really sets out a bit of the international scene um, that that my book sort of takes place within as well. Um, although the maybe the actors and protagonists are quite different. Um, Concretely, my book pieces together the, the work and thought of a small generational cohort of uh, activists from the region encompassing present-day Uganda, Malawi, Zambia, and mainland Tanzania. Um, and I follow their work during the 1950s um, and into the first half of the 1960s when these countries all won flag independence from Britain. Um, and essentially, these activists traveled to the anti-colonial hubs of the day, cities like Delhi, Cairo, London, Accra, certain cities in uh, socialist central Europe too. Uh, they worked with solidarity organizations and lobbying groups and youth and student internationals. Uh, they wrote pamphlets, they approached anti-colonial patrons, formed committees, um, and often, uh, importantly, actually, for my book, their efforts were really frustrated and not always in, in ways that we would expect. Uh, so this work that I've described is precisely the sort of activities that historians uh, have and are now recognizing as formative to 20th century anti-colonialism. And I'd say that we recognize that now in a way that we probably did not perhaps 10 or 15 years ago. Um, and in these intervening years, there's really been some... Uh, important work that demonstrates the connected nature of anti-colonial activism and of uh, decolonization struggles more broadly, um, and especially a reappraisal of movements like Pan-Asianism, Pan-Africanism, um, and different interwar and Cold War internationalisms, the non-aligned movement, third worldism, um, and yeah, it's a really broad-ranging uh body of work um we might most recently think about Adon Getachew's work coming out of IR but it really stretches back much further so the question then is why would the activities of these eastern central African activists that I researched be of interest uh now given given all of this um scholarship that exists or maybe more precisely what what can they tell us uh new about the nature of anti-colonial activism in the post-war period. Um, and I'd like to mention two things, and I think these are really the two core interventions of my book. So the first thing that these activists tell us about is um, something to do with the spatial dynamics of this anti-colonial moment, uh, and especially the tensions within, within it. Um, so for me, the region, as in this particular region of East and Central Africa, is uh, a kind of very important uh, lens in the book, both methodologically, from my point of view as a historian, um, but also as a historical subject. So Malawi, Zambia, Uganda, Tanzania are really not part of the kind of canon of connected decolonization struggles uh, when thinking about this period, although that did change a bit 
later in the 1960s um, when new anti-colonial hubs um, came into being. So it, instead, these countries were somehow sandwiched between places that um, had uh, liberation movements that were more uh, violent, more internationally prominent, and arguably more revolutionary. Um, so notably Kenya um, and the Congo, um, as we already heard from Margot. Um, and th this perception of these countries being somehow a bit marginal to the global anti-colonial moment was, was true at the time too, both in, for example, the UN, but also in the minds of revolutionary thinkers like Franz Fanon. Um, and what this means is that these actors can show us what it looked like to kind of approach and try and participate in this global anti-colonial world from the relative margins. And I say relative because these actors were um, essentially well-educated uh, male elites in their own national contexts. Um, and this is something that we've seen from other people's work as well, like that of Seba Bazzo Manueli. Um, so for these actors, there weren't uh, interwar precedents for kind of participation in a global anti-colonial front or anything of that sort. And their cohort was relatively small in number. Um, and this meant that they really had to make a case um, to be taken seriously um, when they were abroad. And this was true in Accra as much as it was true in London, for example. Um, and I think then one interesting thing that we see through them is uh, that they had to find ways to hold new states accountable to their promises of anti-colonial or Afro-Asian or Pan-African solidarity. For example, this was not a, a kind of a, a given for them. Um, uh, and in that regard, having this sense of region was really important. Uh, I think another thing that we see from them is uh, that uh, their engagement with Cold War power blocks um, is not really as clear cut um, as it might be when when we do research into maybe more prominent groups that were forced to better define their Cold War um, politics. Um, and then alongside this, I, I mean, for me, methodologically approaching these activists as a regional cohort also meant that um, questions about nationalism and this outcome of the nation state in African decolonization that have really preoccupied historians of Africa um, in the last decades. These questions kind of slide into the background a little bit. Um, so in that sense, I hope that my book sets up a way to think about the dialogue between the region and the global. Um, yeah. And then the second claim then that I make in the book is about the relationship between anti-colonial thought and practice, um, which I conceptualized through this idea of an anti-colonial culture. Um, and this, what, I, what I'm saying here also partly stems from everything that I just mentioned about the relative uh, marginality of these actors in, on a kind of global stage. And then the methodology that I developed to, to, to kind of tackle that particular problem. Um, and that brings me to mention something about my source base in the book, which consisted primarily of the kind of many pieces of paper uh, produced by these activists and preserved in various archives, um, especially archives of organizations and institutions, but as well as those of the state, um, both in 
East and Central Africa and in the UK, um, as well as some personal archives and interviews. So this was quite a piecemeal or, um, yeah, quite a piecemeal archive. And uh, what I found did not really yield an, uh, an intellectual history of political thought in the way that perhaps I had uh, hoped or imagined when I, when I set out on the project. Um, but what it did give me instead was a really rich impression of the practices of activism and the many frustrations that came with um, with paperwork, really. So permits for publishing things, passports for travel, and the difficulties of moving letters and newsletters across uh, borders as a colonial subject. Um, and I, I argue in the book then that these experiences uh, were really formative to the ideas that these activists um, expressed. Uh, so especially ideas about how colonialism limited the possibility of engagement with the world on, on one's own terms, and particularly at a non-state level. And then this was this non-state level was also where they saw a lot of the uh, resolutions or their um, to this problem. So they were thinking, for example, about information centers and journalism, um, as well as uh, different types of organizations at a non-state level and some ab more abstract ideas as well about world public opinion. Um, and this type of activism, I think, is, is harder to see if you're working with figures who, say, have a large body of published work or a more illustrious post-independence career, like someone like Kwame Nkrumah or something. Um, and yet I would argue that this that this unrewarding transnationalism, as I call it in the book, was actually maybe more widespread or typical in the post-war anti-colonial world. Um, and the implication then, uh, yeah, the implication of this of this um, observation is that if we can't say, well, activists um, participated in transnational activism because it was uh, effective, then we have to because that's not the that doesn't seem to be the case here, then we have to then explain their enthusiasm for mobility and for addressing global publics and for international organizations in some maybe more complex way. Um, and that's something that, that my book tries to do um, in dialogue with various other fields. Thank you very much, uh, Brian, please. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, I think I have to take you back to the 19th century because that is where uh, my book starts, um, and it is about the International Colonial Institute that was established in 1893. It is also not about the International Colonial Institute because I didn't want it to be in the history of an institution. Um, and yeah, we can probably also talk about that later, what institutions mean. It is also unsure if it is an international organization or not, um, which we have to address as well, as well probably. Um, but I give you a short outline about um, how this happened and how it emerged and what, what it did. So um, it was founded as a, established, as I said, in 1893 uh, by several colonial ofi officials from 13 different, mostly European countries and um, particularly colonizing countries, as they called it. And it soon developed into the biggest colonial think tank. Um, and it existed until 1982. Um, it had a permanent office based in Brussels, 
it was funded by several states, but also ministries and private uh, colonial entrepreneurs. Um, its members and its membership was about 200 around 1914 and increased later on. Its members met every year to discuss specific topics, mostly in a comparative way. Among these topics was the training of colonial administrators, railway building in the colonies, labor recruitment, colonial agriculture, irrigation systems, colonial law, and many more. Um, what is probably important to know is that this International Colonial Institute styled itself as a liberal, reformist, also partly humanitarian institution. Um, it was very much shaped by cultural relativism, meaning that they were not buying into the civilizing mission, the idea of civilizing the colonized people, but uh, rather respecting their culture. That's how they um, framed it. They were um, very much engaged into development projects, but in a way that the development, economic development towards capitalism uh, respected local culture and also local um, um, economies. Um, this was for them a way of even before um, they were struggling with the idea of that communism might influence on people who are about to decolonize, a way of avoiding alienation um, and the colonial version of alienation was detribalization. So the idea that uh, these colonized people get destabilized in any way by being introduced too quickly to a capitalist economy. So that was their idea. They also promoted the idea of functional governance very early on, meaning that um, it was not necessarily the nation states who were the best colonizers, but um, an international group of experts who were really um, experts in colonial matters and also respected inst indigenous institutions. Um, its members did not only talk about that, they published a lot. There are several hundred uh, publications about what they did and um, the way they compared uh, the different colonial methods and technologies, as, as they called it. So they also tried to implement um, the um, what they called the best practice um, of colonialism they developed in this institute. That means in these fields of railway building, colonial agriculture, they were very good at manipulating customary law and uh, Islamic law, and in also using indigenous institutions for colonial purposes. So for them, internationalization equaled indigenization of um, the colonial praxis. For those who participated in, in the Institute, they had little to offer if compared to international organizations or um, the, the peacekeeping forces. They did not offer a career in the proper sense, um, but maybe contributed for those people to make a career because they provided them with knowledge, mainly comparative and um, transferred knowledge, knowledge exchanged knowledge uh, concerning all kinds of colonial methods and technologies. Um, what might be important to know is that it was closely linked to other real international organizations and institutions. 
Um, there was a significant overlapping in membership with the Institute of International Law in the 19th century, um, with whom they worked on uh, contracts for labor recruitment in the colonies, especially Africa, but also on a global scale, colonial law, also Islamic law. Um, of course, they used that to manipulate these kind of colonial laws to get access to resources in the colonies and to legitimate this um, access to resources and the extraction of them. They were cooperating with the International Labour Organization um, and then in the interwar period, of course, with the League of Nations and um, with the Mandates Commission in particular. Um, the darker of, of, of period of the rather dark history of this International Colonial Institute is in the 1930s when they cooperate closely with Italian fascists, um, also Mussolini himself. They organize a big congress in um, Rome where they try to revive the Roman Empire as an imperial empire that includes Europeans and Africans uh, and invent a fascist idea of Euro-Africa, common, uh, especially economic um, space um, that is inherently colonial. Uh, later on, after 1945, it cooperates with UN institutions, uh, institutions of the uh, European community, UNESCO and several foundations. Um, so the this institute has to be seen, I think, in this framework of general um, international organizations, but um, it's, uh, the institute itself was known for being the institution that has the most colonial and probably anthropological um, um, knowledge um, for colonization. So the interesting point for us maybe is when it is re-established in 1949 and also changes its name in Institute of Differing Civilizations. So it was Institute of um, International in uh, Colonial Institute first, and then uh, changed its names in name into Institute of Differing Civilizations. What did that mean? Um, for many people, it was a proof at that time that it abandoned this idea of the civilizing mission and a civilizing standard between different parts of the world and replaced it with an um, equality among differing civilizations, be it um, Indian, African, uh, and so on. Um, what they actually do, I think, is that they... Um, reinterpret um, this idea of cultural relativism um, that includes a good sense of racism as well um, and try to restructure these newly emerging um, post-imperial or still imperial federations which is for example Eurafrica Eurafrica existing on many levels. There is the official Eurafrica that links the European community or that associates as African countries to the uh, European community. Um, but there are also other Eurafricas, for example, or one example in the Institute is um, the Portuguese Empire that uh, still exists until the 1970s. Um, 
And the idea of differing civilization is very much promoted also by um, the Portuguese in this institute um, who think of their empire as, um, that links probably um, to your book, a multiracial empire, and they reinterpret uh, this as an empire of differing civilizations. The idea behind this is that you now have a common economic, maybe also political space, and then you have to legitimate the, the fact that you still um, design it as a segregated space where um, Africans, um, in this case, um, do not have access to democratic rights and especially the right to vote. So um, the narrative of different civilizations is that you have dif different civilizations that do not really um, um, work well together because these are different cultures, civilizations or races. They use that interchangeably and therefore try to um, establish this narrative of a separate but equal existence within these new um, federative empires. Um, yes, I make in the book a very strong claim for continuity from the beginnings of the International Colonial Institute to the end of the International Institute of um, Differing Civilizations. Um, one story that probably links it from the beginning to the end is what I said um, about the valuation of indigenous institutions. Um, and there's one chapter in the book which is about um, the re-evaluation of um, um, Islamic craft guilds and the revival of Islamic craft guilds and agricultural cooperatives as a means and um, instruments to um, establish a colonial economy and uh, make it a success by allegedly using indigenous institutions. And that's the Islamic craft builds and the agricultural cooperatives that are said to exist in the less civilized parts of the world. I mean, they don't use that word, but that's that's what they mean. Um, and um, they develop very smart strategies, I would say, to use these kind of institutions um, that they not only use to um, for production of whatever, like um, agricultural products and cash crops, um, but they also use them uh, to replace um, forced labor in the colonies because it's a sort of, they portray it as a sort of collective um, economy that is natural to in indigenous institute, uh, to indigenous societies. Mm -hmm. um, and that basically forces all the members of these societies to work together for one purpose, um, in this uh, case, um, the economy, um, and it is used as a means to promote forced labor when it has already been officially um, abolished um, by the ILO's initiative in the 1930, uh, early 1930s, or 1921. Um, and they use this also after uh, 1945, and it also um, um, is used in different development organizations um, whom they cooperate with um, until the 1980s or even longer than that. 
I leave it there. There's much more to say, but yes, yes, it's a whole book. Uh, <laughs> so thank you very much for these uh, introductions to three uh, uh, different uh, books, but kind of spanning over the same theme and partially also over the same uh, time frame. Uh, and I thought to just pose maybe a couple uh, uh, of questions that cut across and try to kind of pick up of some some themes and and. Uh, uh, that I saw at least while enjoying these books. So uh, the first thing I was thinking about is that in different ways, your works zero in on what you could call new actors in the trans uh, in this kind of um, uh, period and field. So the transnationally organized colonial internationalists. Of course, we've seen them before, but you have you have you introduced them in a new way um, and through the ICE and this uh, international. Institution for Differing Civilizations, uh, and uh, Margaret with this mid-level UN officials uh, and uh, and global peace governance uh, on the ground, so to speak, uh, and uh, Ismay with these relatively marginal anti-colonial activists and their frustrations in, in Uganda, Tanzania, Malawi, and Zambia. So my kind of overarching question when reading these books is how did you go about kind of um, approaching their agency uh, and their practices, and trying. How did you try to? How did you go about trying to uh, unpack what kind of power they had, how they changed things, uh, uh, and how they tried to influence them? Because I, as I read these books, there's a lot of um, willful, uh, smart. You use the word smart, kind of positioning to gain influence. Sometimes very frustrating. Sometimes perhaps more. More, more effectively, uh, and they're kind of intermeshed between different analytical and real scales, in a sense. So, so this was a question, the question about agency. Uh, I, perhaps I could go to you first, Margaret. Yeah, it's such a good question, um, and it's a question I used to get quite a lot uh, when I when giving papers um, initially because I didn't want my book to argue that these mid-level peacekeepers were asking uh, were operating with abandon you know they had all the agency in the world all the power and the field-based context um i wanted to make sure i had um a full understanding of you know the peaks and troughs um the 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 different spaces um and levels of agency that they operated within and how that shifted from mission to mission um so much of that agency i think was reputationally bound up um, with simultaneously kind of external perceptions of those peacekeepers and the organisation, but also internal. So how those peacekeeping officials perceived themselves, but also the vulnerability of the organisation at that particular moment. So as I argue in the book, post-Congo crisis in West Papua, but also in Cyprus to a certain degree, uh, reputationally the UN's in crisis. And so a lot of the operations on the ground are influence and the agency of the officials on the ground uh, is limited and shaped by this reputational crisis. Um, and, and so I don't want uh, the perception with this book to be, this is a book about how the peacekeeping officials on the ground did what they wanted to do, there were no limitations, um, because there definitely were the mandates that they operated within were very fixed. Um, what I would like to argue is that from that field-based access, that physical interaction with those politicians, um, local populations, 
and their their physical um, knowledge production um, power as well. So that 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 influence of being that midpoint in between um, the operations on the ground and then being able to translate information about the conflict, um, being the authority of that conflict for the UN Security Council was hugely influential in how the international community then um, understood and made decisions on um, a particular conflict. And so I think it's that level of power that we're interrogating. Um, and when we're thinking about agency, it's it, it's perhaps thinking about how they used those um, limits of power to, to, in particular conflicts, to gatekeep in a lot of conversations just about um, how we think about legitimate political organisations and communities. Um, and so I think as a historian operating on this, and obviously I'm sure we'll talk about this more, the way that you go about, because I enjoyed the phrasing of this question, how do you go about kind of uh, approaching their agency, I think is so dependent on source base. And I think when I was struggling a lot, it was when I was trying to uh, really dig into these officials as people with their own individual political backgrounds, careers, aspirations, rather than just um, little kind of Lego people who work for the UN and all have the same homogenized opinions on the mission and their own backgrounds. Um, and I think that's so that so depends on um, on your source base, which is obviously it's incredibly difficult sometimes to find information, and I'm sure it's a foreign be able to talk about this, about people who perhaps aren't the leaders in particular organisations, who um, wrote the documents but probably didn't sign the name at the bottom, weren't the author authorial voice behind it. Um, and so I found oral histories really useful for trying to interrogate kind of bureaucrats. Um, and, uh, and that's obviously something that I, I didn't do any interviews myself, so I used oral history. So I think Ismay could pro probably talk more about that, like the use of doing interviews, but also then like how how do you build that in with other source bases and then like the complications of that? Because I understand like that's that's such a fascinating like insight, but at the same time I imagine complicated and like difficult to try and build in. Um, so yeah, I was just kind of opening up the question of like how we provide that insight to mid level officials, but also local officials, um, politicians, activists, um, who are often lost in those institutional histories and memories. And that that happens within UN archives just as much as it happens within national archives themselves. Um, I'll just stop there because I don't want to keep going, but it's, it's a yeah, it'd be great to hear what the others think about this. Yeah, so uh, Ismail, maybe we just want to carry on. I mean, you're... Yeah. A very different source base, I imagine, but yeah. maybe facing some of the same problems. Yeah, definitely, quite different, but many of the same problems. And this this question of agency is really one that has vexed me kind of throughout the project. Um, and then, I mean, to think about it, it's also one that that preoccupied the actors themselves, and they exactly. were kind of as they were constantly faced with all of these constraints um, that I mentioned. Um, and I guess I, I mean, it's also a very, a very political question. Agency has has become um, a political question, and I think I really, uh, I started with perhaps a quite naive desire to really uh, show that these under acknowledged activists had, um, in some measurable way, uh, impacted something about how decolonization 
uh, unfolded. And I'm actually thinking, speaking to this point about interviews, then, I mean, talking with the children of activists um, or some of their contemporaries as well, because um, I interviewed, yeah, not, not really the, the the main protagonists who are, are no longer alive, but um, but I interviewed, yeah, both um, people of the same generation and of a generation below. And talking to these people also kind of um, fueled, in some sense, this... this uh, hope of mine because of of course understandably they were interested in um having the the work of these um people kind of and their achievements properly recognized but um in the end and to link then to this question of um source material and what your source base is uh the the material they had didn't really didn't really um uh bear that out or didn't really uh kind of lend itself to that type of like direct causative argument um and that's something that that uh, i think the reviewers of my book manuscript also helped me to see <laughs> um, and then instead i was able to think about their importance in maybe different ways the ones that i that i talked about um but it was maybe precisely because i was interested to use um sources produced by these activists and yet at the same time if you if you have um maybe a pamphlet that was published probably uh, in a few kind of tens or hundreds of copies, which you don't even know the number of that you find in an archive, then to assess the, and if you're, you're really uh, engrossed in that as a source base and that those types of materials, then to assess their impact is, is kind of another question um, mm. that, that I, uh, that wasn't my, my main interest. Um, so that, I mean that was that was a kind of a process actually in the research project, but I think that in the end, the stories that I tell do really support the idea that the work of these activists was part of something um, that we still are trying to understand, and that really did have an important um, impact on um, yeah on various things. So I think one thing that really came out um, is that. Uh, is that these sorts of mobile activists whose names perhaps are not uh, well known in in general parlance, even though they are in in their national contexts? Um, these types of activists activists really made anti-colonial hubs into what they were and made them um, gave them their legitimacy um, and gave legitimacy also to the foreign policies of people like Nehru and Nasser and Nkrumah who were who were for their own, uh, with their own interests, kind of um, hosting these sorts of um, activists and later liberation movements as well. Um, and actually, this this links to an argument that Priyamvada Gopal has um, made in relation to London, um, and links also to this question of expertise and knowledge, actually, because I mean, the specialist knowledge that an activist from, for example, Malawi um, had in the context of London in the early 1950s, where there were very few um, uh, resident, uh, resident and politically involved um, Malawians, for example, that's a that's a very a kind of valuable resource, um, and especially that's a valuable resource for anti-colonial lobbying and sympathising groups, European, white, in various. Um, uh, places, not only London, and despite the um, obviously unequal power relations between a resident activist and a group that is uh, maybe publishing their pamphlet or uh, hosting their small meeting or something, 
then that does that kind of um is part of its making in a way um and these organizations really needed the activists for their own legitimacy um and so i think this in turn has implications for how we understand later global anti-imperial activism um, especially with a kind of bigger support base perhaps around 68 and vietnam and anti-apartheid um and perhaps also for the history of african studies um as a as a scholarly discipline thanks um florian i mean just to maybe you will get into this but one of the things that really struck me uh, and i think also margaret in in reviewing your book is uh, the material interests which is also very much part of their agency which you focus on as well like how to make money basically so yeah sorry please florian Yeah, that that is. Uh, I mean, it's not a hundred percent sure if um, my institute made the people who joined it important or whether they were important before. Um, I think there were the most important colonial theorists and also those who were involved in its practice in this institute. Um, be it colonial ministers who joined the institute, um, a lot of scholars, obviously, who then went back to the university and introduced colonial science um, to the universities by the end of the 19th century. Um, but also colonial officers and engineers who were active on the ground in the colonies. Um, so there are, I think, important people on various levels. They were also my access to the Institute because there is no archive of the Institute left that was destroyed in one of the wars. <laughs> I mean, or maybe both, I don't know, um, but it's not there anymore. Um, and um, so I approached the Institute via its members. And as I said, there are many of them. It was like, um, 200 at a time, but over the whole period of its existence, it was over a thousand members who joined this institute. And most of them were really important um, for colonization around the world. Um, so maybe what, what was special then about this institute? Did they need it to do what they did? Um, probably not, but what I think is special about the institute and what it did with these peoples is that while being there in the International Colonial Institute, um, they really tried to abandon um, nationalist conflicts. So um, in the beginning, it was just like an idea and it never worked very well. But soon after, they considered themselves as true colonialists. And you can also see that they, they said they're going to develop a, a colonial sphere, sui generis, where they um, are only colonialists and um, not involved in any kind of um, both nationalist conflicts, but they also didn't consider themselves as imperialists because that for them involved conflicts, potential conflicts between empires, which they tried to avoid to save the whole project of colonialism. For example, they um, there were French members who, um, by the beginning of the First World War, traveled to Germany to meet the emperor, to try to convince him that the war was not a good thing, um, to save um, both colonial empires, the French and um, the German ones, but also uh, one, but also uh, colonialism as a whole. Um, so, 
they were really colonial people. They also celebrated um, the Belgian initi initiative, which was originally an international one to colonize the Congo as the civilizing or colonizing state, as they called it, the pre, um, what's the name, um, Italy, um, the, like the first uh, uh, Congo state, which was not an official colony, but the state under, under the, the Belgian king, who was not um, the sovereign as a Belgian king, but um, represented a sort of international um, um, colony. So um, I think they are sort of the proof for the post-colonial activists today that something like a colonial yeah. being existed and that it was um, mainly European. In this case, they were directly involved in colonization, um, but uh, they also produced this kind of colonial person, this colonial um, being. Um, and I think they sort of deliver the proof for that um, problem we have today still um, that we are intrinsically also thinking in a colonial way. And that is also based on what they produced on in terms of um, um, scientific literature on colonialism, which was not always visible as colonialist um, and was present in all kinds of fields. So if you as an engineer reading stuff on irrigation systems in southern Spain and southern Africa. And that's what they did to compare these uh, spaces, but also to link them. Um, it's inherently colonial, but it's not visible, mm -hmm. um, necessarily visible at first sight. So I think they did, with their kind of um, perspective, a good job in um, colonizing everything which needs to be decolonized today. Um, and that's also why they could be interpreted as sort of um, gatekeepers because they really dominated everything. Um, there was literature in general about the global South. And they also had this moral dimension, portraying themselves as neutral internationalists. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and this makes them probably also um, as an interesting prehistory of international organizations later on, like the UN development mm -hmm. um, institutions that or organizations, uh, that this gave them a sort of legitimacy and that's what they thought of themselves, that they are, they are neutral, global, and very close to the indigenous population, claiming that they knew them very well. And the, the last point, the uh, information which I withheld from you, um, of course, in 1949, when they um, became the International Institute of Differing Civilizations, they accepted members from the Global South, mainly people um, who represented independent countries then. Um, but most of them were loyal to them and had cooperated for a longer period with the also the International Colonial Institute. Nevertheless, for some of them, it was a possibility, of course, to um, or a potential space of empowerment and also a possibility to get in touch with um, the colonizers who were not the metropole. And um, people like Leopold Senghor were mem became members of the this institute and played, I think, an ambiguous role, but generally also could or imagined to use the International Institute of Differing Civilizations as a source of empowerment which did, I think, not happen in the end. Um, 
yeah, and this links probably to the question of the legacy of anti-colonialists and what anti-colonialist means. They all said they are anti-colonialists, even the white members of the Institute. Um, they endorsed decolonization, but the decolonization for them was not uh, did not equal independence. Um, um, yeah, we can yeah. discuss that later, maybe. Yeah. All right. I, so I think, in a sense, this kind of uh, this and the intercolonial learning practices, which is really also at the core of, of, of the institute, uh, and this colonial internationalism, then really lends credence to Getachev's argument about world making needing to, to play take place on an international stage to have an effect, because they're actually fighting, fighting quote unquote, someone that is very well organized on the international stage and, and doing it quite deliberately. I'll try to collapse two big questions uh, and ask you to kind of uh, reflect freely on them uh, uh, for a little while and then open up the floor to you guys. Um, so I just want to ask two big questions. Uh, the first one being, uh, what is this kind of experience of writing a transnational or global uh, book on, on, on your specific subject? How has it kind of changed your understanding of the long process of decolonization, arguably ongoing uh, process. Uh, and secondly, what have you taken? You have read each other's books uh, or ex excerpts of it. You have reviewed each other's books. You know each other's work. What have you kind of taken away from each other's work? What, what, what did you learn from reading each other's books and go, hmm, I hadn't thought about that. So maybe go to you first, Margaret. Yeah, um, that's, that's two great questions <laughs> to try and fit together. I'll try and not take up too much time. Um, my entire understanding of decolonization shifted um, during this project uh, throughout. Um, so for my book, it is based on my PhD thesis. And so I was very, very lucky to have had uh, effectively a team of supervisors because of various pregnancies and periods of leaving academia. So I ended up with kind of four people who at various points contributed to the project and they all pushed me to really interrogate this specific idea of decolonization. Firstly, I suppose in the way that um, I thought of it as um, like the third wave of decolonization you kind of see it described as quite a lot and i've been interrogating that a lot recently with um other scholars uh such as emma kluge and elizabeth leake um and just thinking a lot more about it as a generation so rather than these kinds of fixed um moments when it comes up and kind of takes over and i think also reflects on on ismay's work on this kind of there is a continuum of people working on anti-colonial thought and yes there are kind of um moments when of course uh, that might be more visible on the international stage but that does not kind of um delegitimize or uh, undermine the work the political work and the vibrancy of that political work that's being done by anti-colonial thinkers or um I think is involved in decolonization, however we broadly we conceive of it. And I also think that's the thing that the multiplicity or perhaps the um the many faces of decolonization, the many interpretations or um the pluralities, that's it, the pluralities of decolonization. So obviously um within scholars today within historiography, we have debate about decolonization, but I think just as Ismay was saying, there was kind of contemporary 
debate at the time about how to think about agency. I think there was contemporary debate at the time about what is decolonization. I think Florian's just conquered that as well. You know, different um, colonial um, thinkers had ideas about how decolonization could work in their interests. Um, and so I think that's probably um, an area that I really, before studying this work, I hadn't thought about how so many different actors could use the same words, could use the same language and rhetoric um, of decolonization, humanitarianism, international security, peace, but have incredibly different interpretations of what that would mean, um, not only for the populations directly affected by uh, decolonization, but the international kind of paradigm of international relations itself. Um, you know, would decolonization lead to a completely different reimagining of how we think about political uh, collectives and communities? Or are we thinking about decolonization neatly fitting within this kind of liberal internationalist paradigm? Um, and I think there was this huge spectrum of how people interrogated this idea of decolonization. Um, so I think it was both this, both this kind of time, this, this idea of decolonization being a very discreet kind of 20 year period, which obviously I haven't, I think that's probably something that I need to keep thinking about um, in my own work and, and, and having that critical um, opinion of my own work of, of kind of really fixing on that 20th century being the only period um, of decolonization, but also um, this idea that decolonization is, you know, a universally understood idea. And I think it's also the same thing with self-determination, right? And that's, I think, an ongoing conversation about how different anti-colonial thinkers thought about self-determination. That was definitely something that came out on my work on West Papua, um, was that how complicated it can sometimes be within the Afro-Asian bloc, which is obviously um, the kind of most prominent or dominant um, anti-colonial, quote-unquote, uh, voting bloc within the UN General Assembly at the time that I'm thinking about. But within that bloc, there were these hierarchies of what was legitimate and anti-legitimate forms of um, stated and working on West Papua really, really helped me to interrogate my own um, assumptions that I'd come into this project with, um, and and to really think about how self determination and anti colonial thinking was not just a kind of binary, um, and that there were these multiplicities within that. So again, the thing I mean, both work have hugely inspired me I've really really enjoyed uh, reading the work and obviously with Florian's work I wrote a review <laughs> quite recently of Florian's work so for detailed um, feedback <laughs> please see um, said review um, but I suppose just to kind of give her like a summary of what um, I really took out of it was uh, this this idea of trans-imperialism, which I really, I, I I hadn't interrogated as much, despite the fact that I worked on multiple different imperial uh, imperial powers and their interactions with the UN, that remained still discrete. So it was still like the Belgium and the UN and France and the UN. And, and so it wasn't, it wasn't so much that kind of idea that these um, strategies and policies could be shifted within imperialism, and that the institute itself could be a, a mechanism through that through which that could that could really be and i suppose just like you were talking about neutralized you know that process can be moralized in a particular way and it can be technocratic part of this technocratic process and seeing this kind of sharing and collaboration beyond national boundaries i think is something that i really see as a similarity between our work um especially for kind of informing you know how development should be shaped and having these kind of collaborative ideas. 
Um, and obviously, we both work on international civil servants, which I think is a really interesting <laughs> kind of area to try and find personality, because often uh, work that's been done on international civil servants is from a leadership perspective. And so I think that we both share that kind of interest in thinking about the political um, within those spaces and trying to think about the practical repercussions of those political conversations. And so although a lot of um, your book focuses on these kind of European representatives, their focus so much on practice is so fascinating to me that, you know, it's it's very, it's, 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 although an academic conversation, there is this, this, this is immediacy that's, you know, um, very compelling in thinking about their political work. And it's something that I see that dynamic being um, very, very similar to how UN officials and civil servants conceived of their work. Um, and so obviously it, it covers so much more time <laughs> than my book and it really kind of um, is, is so complicated in being able to show that the evolution of the organisation. And I think that that's something that perhaps if I'd been more ambitious... I would have tried to do is show that those tensions um, and the direction and the you know you were really able to show the the evolution of the organisation and its politics, but also its membership, like you were just talking about. Um, and yeah, I've, I've got so much, but again, please see a review <laughs> for more comments. But um, and I thought that Ismay's work was so powerful for demonstrating something that. Um, unfortunately, I'm not kind of able to do at all in my work, which is to show the, the incredible vi political vibrancy and vitality with these anti-colonial activists um, during this period, because I'm working the history of those trying to quash those really important voices. Um, I remember Meredith Teresa was my um, external, and she was always like referring to work like yours and other people's, and she's like, you're just like the bad guys on the flip side of these like incredible conversations. Um, which just means I love to read these histories because then it really helps to uh, fill me full of anger and be ready to write another book. Um, but yeah, I, I completely appreciate when you were talking about methodologies, how incredibly difficult it is to kind of trace the intellectual history of these kinds of activists um, due to this, you know, traditional sources, perhaps having these huge gaps but about where you were trying to really um, interrogate these silences that are so fascinating, you know, the area that we're all so interested in. And it was something, again, like I mentioned before, about something I really struggled in my own work because um, with Congolese officials, um, often, you know, it would be a very brief co quote or it would be kind of um, paraphrased in UN reports. And it was just so incredibly frustrating that um, the way that political activists, especially from the global south, through the framework that I was looking at through UN sources were so dismissed as not politicians, despite their being explicitly working in political spheres or on political topics. You were just incredibly um, dismissed. So I thought that was the way that you were able to um, re-legitimise these sources, I thought was really powerful and really, really important. And I also thought um, that you're transnational. I suppose I really enjoyed what you just said about how it was much more of a regional relationship with the global, which I thought was yeah, exactly how I felt about it. It was, was really inspiring and it really pushed me to think about how, even though my work, uh, my, my the people who I, who I trace are often working within this very fixed idea of what the nation state, within this nation state idea of sovereignty, they actually had similarly a very regional or kind of urban idea of, and, and like you say, with hubs about um, the international community. It was so 
um, and, and their own careers moving and shifting between these urban spaces, cities, um, not just the UN headquarters, but around the global south. Um, and so seeing decolonization as this moment of opportunity for so many different inspiring alternative views of the political community I've already talked about. Um, but also just as a final thing, love pamphlets, like just <laughs> so excited uh, when I saw that so much of it was worked on that kind of DIY kind of political collective um, collective ideas. Um, this is so much more important for my second book project, which is working kind of on like peacekeepers had their own like kind of magazine they call it a magazine it's basically a pamphlet um they like to hype themselves by saying it was a magazine it was not a magazine um and yeah so i found reading this book just as i'm about to go into this next project so inspirational for like methodologically thinking about how to use those more informal but very personal forms of political engagement and and especially for you know, forms of knowledge production, but also as kind of cultural tools for building and growing political community, like actually using the kind of physical materiality of those pamphlets. Um, so yeah, I just, that's going to be definitely something I use in my next project. So I just want to thank you both, but I hope that wasn't too much. Oh, no, that's, uh, thank you very much, Margaret. I mean, uh, big questions deserve big answers. So that's, that's, my, that's, that's how it goes. Ismay, please. Yeah, thank you. And thank you, Margot. It's, it's really uh, nice to hear. So it's a really nice question to ask, actually, and to have this uh, conversation. And I think, yeah, I, I, again, have really taken a lot from from the work of both of you um, and wish that that it that kind of that these projects didn't happen so much in parallel, that uh, that it'd been able to benefit also from it earlier. Um, and actually some quite similar things about the politics of knowledge production and expertise um uh and yeah these these questions um perhaps to start with florian's work i think something that i uh an important thing for me that i took from this was this idea of uh transnationalism and or what it means to pursue transnational practices um, because I think there's been a really valid critique in um, from kind of uh, especially in the sort of anti-colonial solidarity literature for this romanticization of transnationalism and almost giving transnationalism some kind of positive moral weight because we know that the nation state is bad, therefore transnationalism yeah. is good sort of thing. And I've and I've been sort of always uh, wary of this trap to fall into. But I think that I've never I've never had such a such a kind of uh, seen such a strong case for for like showing when that is not true. Um, <laughs> so that's that's really I think an important um, thing and how really that the that these practices and ideas of transnationalism can emerge precisely to prop up um, empire essentially. Um, and I think, like related to that, this this fact that the um, this kind of helps with these categories, especially when you were talking about um, global south actors joining the institution um, later after the post-war period, um, helps us sort of think a bit differently about categories like uh, moderate and radicals and reformists and collaborators, which have been very prominent in histories of of decolonization um and to put this into really a longer and more um yeah more kind of international 
context. Um, and that's something that I really could have benefited from in my book, actually, because I tried to, I saw that these categories like radical and moderate are not really adequate, but I didn't know what to, I struggled to know what to do with that and to put it in this longer, um, this longer history, actually. So I really appreciated that. Um, and from Margot's work, um, again, really lots, so much that I took from it. Um, and without even having read the, <laughs> the, the full book yet, because it is truly only a week old, but the parts and also articles that I know are related to the book, um, already I've, there's, there's so many things. Um, and especially this kind of, uh, to think about these different actors that I hadn't really considered um, before, and especially the notion of gatekeeping as a way to understand what their what their role was. I think that's really generative, and and yeah, I think there'll be lots to 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 do from that. And I I think I again I could have taken much more from um, from your work, Margot, and I guess in the context also of other new work on international organizations that have all gone and then Alana O'Malley on the on the UN as well that um that kind of really makes us rethink what what an international organization is because I think um I probably started my project with a, a kind of an assumption that maybe UN histories don't really um that that couldn't really tell uh, or kind of do justice to to African history, and I mean, some people, some it could that could still be argued in some sense. But I think this all of the the work that's happened in the past few years on precisely the UN has has really challenged that assumption and shown that also kind of uh, if I take the position of my uh, protagonist, who kind of thought now uh, who had quite kind of only limited understanding of the UN, then <laughs> of course that I don't see the the complexities of these stories. And I, I kind of have an argument in my book that the UN um, and its various agencies to different extents were, were inaccessible to the activists that, that I look at. But um, but I think I that could have been a much better developed argument had I uh, been more aware of and more engaging with precisely histories of, <laughs> of the UN and its various, it's kind of, various parts instead of precisely um treating it as a a homogenous institutional mm. actor which like well, now which margot has like has shown cannot is not the case and and isn't an, an error um and i i think the both actually both of what i've taken from both of you then links to this question of of uh, a global approach or a transnational approach um which for me was quite central from the beginning of the project. Um, and I was almost looking for the global and the transnational in these, in the the topic in, in anti-colonialism. So that inevitably you always find the global and the transnational when you look for it. Um, so then the question was really like what, what to do with that. Um, and I think maybe one of the processes for me has been thinking about the the skepticism and I think often very um, understandable skepticism on the part of some historians of Africa towards global approaches mm. um, and towards perhaps international history as a as a field um, which yeah um, 
I mean, I, like, th this makes sense because it, we then end up sometimes with a history of anti-colonialism where it seems like uh, these mobile elites have uh, brought to African countries uh, ideas from elsewhere. And then again, we get this romanticizing of transnationalism, which, um, yeah, which is which is problematic. And that's why I try to, uh, in I mean, it didn't appear to be the case with the group of activists that I was looking at. So I, the first chapter of my book really takes place within this region um, and shows how that in itself was a transnational and globally connected space mm -hmm. before um, before they they left and traveled in a way. So um, yeah, I think perhaps that that gives a a, a sense of of the process and um, how actually both of both of your books could have could have really helped me in in dealing with some of those questions. Yeah, great, Brian. What did you learn? Yeah, I, I think that there's nothing, not much left um, to say because you said it yourself. Um, I, I was impressed by your book and how it linked um, regional and global history and um, overcame this conflict, I would say, between area studies and, yeah. and global history. And it's uh, really a strange conflict, I think, between, of course, it is a matter of um, not really about the content necessarily, um, between global history and area studies. But um, I, I think, and after reading your book, um, this has been confirmed that um, sort of global history or maybe also transnational history um, gives us access also to regional history mm -hmm. uh, and the other way around the region to the global. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I think people are not really aware of that. Um, and it's interesting, I had like, other reviews and I think Margot's was way better where um, um, a reviewer who oh, I will not mention and uh, now um, uh, called all the paragraphs uh, that included indigenous voices if you want to put it like that as anecdotes and said oh well this is a nice anecdote this is a nice anecdote and for me it was um, a way to show structural agency of, of these people and uh, the global historian who wrote this review saw it only as anecdotes that maybe illustrate something but mm -hmm. are um, neglectable actually um, or not necessary in the book. And I think this is uh, these are ways of um, looking at these kind of books that um, are well not uh, up to date anymore and um, we should rather try to link them and I think you did that in a much better way than any other books especially because you're also I mean there's also the the other side like um, people who are specialized in African history are um, often blaming global historians of sweeping over like um, uh, what really happened there and reproducing cliches uh, and I think you showed that this is not uh, necessarily the case and um, is not an automatism that this is um, reproduced from this global point of view. Um, um, in from Margot, I uh, probably learned to think, although I claim to be specialized in this, to think more about what colonialism is and also decolonization, because you brought up this idea of this, I don't know if you want to call it second order colonialism, but the West Papua case, 
uh, where the Indone Indonesians together with the peacekeeping forces, so, so to say, become uh, turned into uh, colonizers. And I think um, it's really interesting to, to think about this relationship um, um, also with regard to moderate and radicals. I mean, what, what was the role then of anti-colonialism? I always interpreted Indonesia as a strong anti-colonial force in, in um, certain um, years of the Second World War and also before. Um, um, but this is not necessarily the case. And uh, I think it's really interesting to think about these big concepts a bit more and maybe also to historicize it. I mean, what did people at the time think uh, colonialism is? What did they think decolonization is? Um, I think, for example, in my case, it is um, striking that after 1945, these members of the International Colonial Institute um, reflected in, in, in a much more intense way about what they said than people would do today or uh, the peacekeeping forces would do. I, I was actually surprised about the peacekeeping forces uh, to be um, not really sensitive towards colonial issues at all, apparently, and reproducing um, the ideas of um, inferiority of the indigenous people and um, the idea of pacification because they're not able to solve problems themselves and conflicts. Um, and in a way, I think that these International Colonial Institute members, uh, and that's why I used the word smart before, were quite smart in kind of avoiding um, these traps of reproducing um, um, colonial rhetoric. So they were very good at rhetorical decolonization. Um, but I didn't find that, for example, in the peacekeeping forces. And it surprised me. Um, but it also tells a lot about how these kind of institutions work. For example, the International Colonial Institute members very early on portray themselves as anti-racists, um, which might be surprising if they do that. I mean, they already did that before the Second World War, but then it becomes a sort of programmatic thing after the 1950s, um, they um, issue a resolution that the Institute is anti-racist. Um, and everything, everybody says, wow, uh, this is very progressive. But what, what they actually do and what they mean is um, that in the context of decolonization, <clears throat> African countries who are becoming independent are um, chasing white settlers from Africa, and that is what they are defining as racist. So getting rid of white settlers in Africa is a um, racist uh, process. Um, and that is why they are claiming to be anti-racist. And then there is a big discussion within the Institute where Leopold Senghor protests against this idea of racism and has to defend Africans that, and, and um, convince the white members that Africans are not racist. And uh, these kind of rhetorical plays, I think, are um, uh, really interesting. And um, well, I, I, I think that is also in the other books. I'm like not really answering um, one question at a time, but somehow <laughs> mixing them up. Yeah, yeah, or, yeah. Um, yeah. And well, reading Margot's book, I was also sort of the idea emerged whether the post-colonial period is actually more colonial than the colonial period because it is uh, such a strong continuity um, of these kind of structures and ideas. Um, 
and especially the fact that you can apply colonial patterns of thinking to all parts of the world, also the parts that have formerly not been officially colonized, um, is something I think that happens um, in during decolonization, after decolonization, that is what the International Colonial Institute is also doing. They're going to South America, then uh, getting involved in interior colonialism and um, dealing with indigenous people. So um, I think these colonial ideas and structures and uh, practices are spreading after uh, the Second World War rather than being reduced. And this is uh, something I also was interested in uh, in your book. Thank you, everyone, for really nice questions and a nice engagement with these three super interesting and important books. You've seen one passed around. I encourage everyone to who's interested to, to pick them up or read them online or however you do it. And uh, thanks so much for, for coming and, uh, and hanging out for a couple of hours. Diplomatica, a journal of diplomacy and society.